The following presentation is coming to you from the Diocese of Orange, California, the home of Christ Cathedral, where the Catholic faith is made crystal clear. This is SJEN-TV. So my brothers and sisters, we have reached our last week for this class. I really enjoyed having this class with you guys. It was truly a great blessing, um, especially, you know, it's so important, so important to be able to read through books of the Bible with the group and really, um, you know, just to really uh, discover what each author is trying to help us to understand about Jesus. That's the main question. It all focuses on who is Jesus and how do I be as this, how do I become his disciple? How do I become the best disciple of Jesus possible? And especially when you look at the Gospels, every single Gospel has little nuances that the authors of the Gospel want us to pick up. And Luke has many special nuances in the way that he conveys the gospel so that we can understand one central truth, and that is that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's the savior of the world. As simple as that, he's the promised Messiah and he is the savior of the world. And so let us go to Luke chapter 24. We're now in Luke chapter 24. And many of you, how many of you enjoyed going to the reading on Palm Sunday, listening to the Passion of our Lord Jesus. How many of you enjoyed listening to the Passion? What about Good Friday? Did any of you guys go on Good Friday and listen to the Passion? I love listening to the Passion. And you know what they say? They say, don't preach too long on Good Friday. Have you ever, and you know what I say? I can't help it. I have to talk about this, you know, because there's so much there on Good Friday. And so I broke the five-minute rule, of course, you know, or 15-minute rule, but there, there's just so much there. And in the Passion, it's, it's the story of the church. And now we pick up in Luke chapter 24. We read the last chapter of Luke's gospel, The Road to Emmaus. So please rise, my brothers and sisters. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. the Lord be with you. Dear Heavenly Father, bestow your Holy Spirit upon us today. We give you thanks and praise for all the blessings and benefits that you've bestowed upon us. But above all, we give you thanks and praise for the blessing of the faith. Because through the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have the promise and hope of eternal life. We ask you to bless us especially as we study this story in Luke chapter 24, which conveys to us the glory of our Lord's resurrection and the events that occurred when two disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus. Help us, Lord, to discover in this short story about Emmaus the importance of the Holy Scriptures, which are proclaimed at every Mass, and the importance of the Holy Eucharist, which we celebrate at every Mass. Open our eyes, Lord, and our hearts, so that there will be true transformation in our lives as well. We ask this through Christ our Lord, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated, my brothers and sisters. Without any further ado, let us go to Luke chapter 24. By the way, if you're still eating your dinner, it's okay. Don't worry, I won't be offended. I might ask you a question though. But, we go to Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to kind of go through this chapter slowly because we only have one chapter. We've been doing two chapters every single evening. So in Luke chapter 24, it says, But on the first day of the week, 
At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices which they had prepared. Now, first and foremost, it was the first day of the week, but when did the week really start? When did the week really start? Well, the first day of the week is what day? What day is that? Sunday, of course, it's Sunday. The first day of the week is Sunday. And that's the day when God said, what did he say in the book of Genesis? Wait, did he say that first day of the week? Yes, let there be light. It's the first day of the week. Let there be light. And it, it just happens to be the same day that Christ rises from the dead. Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, rises from the dead on the first day of the week. Now, if you go all the way back to Palm Sunday, you see that it's a whole week. It's a week from the time that Jesus enters Jerusalem. They accept him as king. Then they crucify him, and he rises on what day? On the first day of the week, which is the third day, which is Sunday, which is also the, what number day would it be? The eighth day. So you, you got to keep all these numbers in, in, in your mind and just think they're all important. The first day of the week, it's from the, it's from the third day, and it's also the eighth day. Why the number eight? Somebody was asking me about this because we are in the octave of Easter. And after Christmas, there's also a octave. And I, I, I love to give the simple answer, which is just Catholics are looking for any excuse to have a party. And if we can extend this as long as possible, we're going to do that. And I got good news for you because that's exactly what's going to happen in eternity. We're waiting for the eternal Sabbath rest. And in the book of Revelations, it's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Isn't that beautiful? And every time we go to Mass, we have a foretaste in that great celebration that we will celebrate for all of eternity. So let me take you all the way back to the Old Testament to explain this amazing thing about the first day of the week and the eighth day. So first and foremost, you go back and you look at creation, and it's all a seven-day program, right? And on the seventh day, the seventh day is the Shabbat, the Sabbath, rest. And that's the day when God rested. When did the Sabbath end in the book of Genesis? Was there a verse that said the Sabbath ended, it was over? No. There's no verse that recounts the Sabbath ending. It's almost like it doesn't say it, but it's almost like it was just meant to go on for eternity. And Adam and Eve sinned, and they were expelled from the garden. And we're never told when the Sabbath actually ended, or if it even was supposed to end. It seems like it wasn't. And so the concept of an eternal Sabbath begins to grow in Scripture. Psalm 95 talks about how the Israelites rebelled in the desert and they would not enter into God's rest. And what's really amazing is look at the feast days in the, in the Old Testament. If you go and look at all those different feast days, that there's a concept of an entire week associated with those feast days. Isn't that beautiful? And in, in the, the number seven is associated with them. And, and so you have this concept that every feast day in the Old Testament has a kind of eschatological character. And you're probably thinking, a what character? An eschatological character in this sense that each 
of the feast days, if you look at it as a week-long celebration, it reminds us of creation and it anticipates the eternal Sabbath that God will celebrate with his people. Isn't that amazing? And, and even Passover itself was an eight-day feast day. If you, if, if you have the Passover for one day, and then after that you have seven days of unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's eight days altogether. So there's something beautiful about this. Jesus rises on the eighth day, the first day of the week, which is also the eighth day. I did a wedding, I'll tell you another story. I did a, a wedding eight years ago in San Juan Capistrano. And, and the woman, she was Chinese and she came into the church and received the faith. And I get a call on my telephone from her husband and he says, Father, it's been eight years and we need to come and visit you and ask you for a special blessing. And I'm just thinking, are you guys pulling my leg here? Eight, what's this eight year blessing thing? I didn't, it didn't occur to me, you know, that in the Chinese culture, the number eight is extremely important, okay? And, I, and for a while, I was just kind of like, you know, what's, what's the catch on this one here? Why, you know, they, why are they making such a big deal about this? And then, you know, they came to the church and they, they, they reminded me about their story and everything. And I talked with them and I finally put it together and I said, wow, this is beautiful because the number eight in scripture is also very important. So this woman, she was Chinese. She, you know, she was so grateful to God for her wedding and also because she had entered the church and she wanted a special prayer and blessing after eight years, you know. But I, of course, Told, you know, told them a little bit about the importance of the number eight in scripture. The number eight is very important because a child was circumcised on what day? The eighth day. And how many people were on the ark? Four men and their wives. That means, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure that one out, by the way. Four men and their wives. There's eight people on the ark. Eight is the number of the new creation. The new creation begins with eight people. Isn't that amazing? Now, how about this? A leper, when he was cleansed of leprosy or she cleansed of leprosy, they had to go through a whole process of purification. And finally, if they were able to come back in the community, they were able to come back on the on the eighth day. And there were many, uh, uh, you could say, periods of cleansing that finished on the eighth day. So you can start to kind of catch on to this. The number eight in the Old Testament is really important. It's the number of new, God beginning a new work, God doing something extraordinarily new, the number of the new creation. And so Jesus rises on the first day of the week, which is also the eighth day. Notice that it's early dawn, right at the early dawn. And this is really important because in the, in the Greek language, they have this special word, anatole. Anatole, it has the sense of, of the rising sun, but it was also a word that was associated with the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the Messiah. At the break of dawn, the, the coming of the Messiah. And so Jesus, once again, Jesus who is the light of the world. So right at the beginning of day, it's, it's, what I like to say is God never procrastinates. He doesn't procrastinate at all. We're the ones who procrastinate. And so look, just look at the resurrection. And so it says at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices. Who was going to the tomb which they had prepared? It was, it was some women. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. 
And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, first and foremost, who are these men, by the way? Who do you, who do you think they are? They're angels. How do we know that they're angels? Well, many times in the Old Testament, angels appear, but the people don't recognize them. And you read all these different stories in the Old Testament. Abraham, Genesis chapter 18. Then you go to Genesis chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. You have the same thing where angels are appearing, but people are just recognizing them as men. But in context, if you read the whole story, you go, oh, that's that's an angel. And I bring this up because you have people who doubt the inspiration of the New Testament, and they try to point at this. Look, it was men in one gospel, it's angels in another gospel. And, and the answer is very simple. It's, it's, look, without context, you have a pretext. And what that means is, of course, you read the whole story in Luke's gospel, you know he's talking about angels. You read Mark's gospel, you know he's talking about an angel. And so it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where it appears to be a big difference, but then when you read it a little bit, you study it, you go, oh yeah, well, I guess that makes sense. And it's not that much of a deal after all. And so in, the, in the, our modern world, though, we have a lot of people who try to um, put down the New Testament. And this is happening in our universities right now. A lot of our young people are being exposed to hyper New Testament criticism. And what that means is they're being exposed to very cynical views of the Bible and the New Testament. And this is what they're getting at universities. And so we want to be able to give them intelligent answers so that they can see, wow, a lot of this is very superficial. And so we have two men who appear, and they're dazzling. It says that, uh, I'll find the verse right here, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And in context, you're going to see that these are angels here. And as they were frightened, the women bowed their faces to the ground. And they, the two men who were two angels, they asked the question, and look what they say. Why do you seek the living among the the dead. They came to the tomb of Christ not because they had faith that Jesus was risen. They just came to throw some spices on the body. You're looking for the wrong Jesus. You're looking for a dead Jesus, a Jesus who's buried in the tomb and he's risen from the dead. And you know, many people in our contemporary society might be, see might be seeking the wrong Jesus because they want Jesus without a cross. And even sometimes they don't want the resurrected Christ either because he completely changes the way that we must live. They don't want the cross because the cross, if we look at who Christ is and Christ crucified, we realize that we must die completely to ourselves. If we look at Christ who is risen and we study the resurrection, we realize that we cannot live for ourselves. And so we get with when we study the cross and the resurrection, we come to the point that we must die to ourselves and we cannot live for ourselves, but we must live completely for him and allow him to live in us. And that's exactly what St. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I do not live, not I, but Christ lives within me. And that's 
exactly what happens when we, when we really understand the cross and when we truly understand that he's risen and believe with all our hearts that he has been risen from the dead. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Many times in our, we could probably look at our own lives and say, wow, there was a moment where I, my life had nothing to do with doing the Lord's will. I was seeking, you know, I was seeking the dead instead of the living. And so let's go. It says right after that, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Notice who's the one who shares the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Who shares the good news? An angel. Who came to Mary and told Mary the good news? An angel. Who came to Zechariah and told Zechariah the good news about John the Baptist? An angel. Are you guys kind of, is it just me or is this, you know, kind of a little trend right here? And, you know, it goes all the way back to the Exodus where God sends his angel to lead the Israelites in their journey through the desert. And so it's through the ministry of angels. You see angels throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's not an accident that it's angels themselves who are delivering the good news of Jesus's resurrection to others. And and it's really amazing, too, because if you look at when Mary meets Gabriel and then when the women are at the tomb, they're almost like bookends, you know, the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and Mary saying, let it be done according to thy word. And now the angels appearing to the women at the tomb and saying, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here but has risen. Verse 6 now. Look what it says in verse 6. It says, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. What is that called? That is Jesus's what? His, his Paschal mystery. That's his... He, he, he predicted that he would be handed over, crucified, and rise from the dead. How many times did he predict that? At least three times. At least three times. In Mark's gospel, it's very clear, three times. In Matthew, it seems like you, if you count them closely, there might be a few more. But there's three central times in the synoptic gospels where he's journeying down from Caesarea Philippi, then to Galilee, and then going up to Jerusalem, and he's predicting his passion. But here you have the angel saying, remember he told you this. He gave you this prediction slash prophecy. I like to think it's more of a prophecy than a prediction because people predict a lot of things that don't come true, but this is a prophetic thing that our Lord said that would happen. And so he, when he talked about his passion. Now, what about verse 7? The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men. Who is the Son of Man? Is it just a title where it helps us to recognize Jesus' humanity, that he's truly human? There might be a little bit there, but it really points to this special figure in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, where Daniel had this heavenly vision, and he saw one coming upon the clouds who was like a son of man, and he was presented before the Ancient of Days. And the Son of Man received an eternal kingdom, and he received authority. 
a kingdom that would never end. Now, this phrase, son of man, Jesus loves to use. He uses it all the time to talk about himself. He's associating himself with the heavenly figure. And this is the very thing that our Lord said when he stood before the high priest. And the high priest said, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? And he said, basically, he referred to himself as the son of man coming upon the clouds. And that's when the high priest tore his garments and he said, we don't even need any more testimony. This guy's saying that he's from heaven. This guy is equating himself to, like, to be almost like God, like God's son. And so our Lord was then crucified. Go on a little bit more here. Let's go to verse 8. In verse 8 it said, right after that it says, And they remembered his words. So in verse 8 it's kind of like they're standing there and they're like, Ah! Oh, that, that's what he meant when he was talking about being handed over and crucified and rising on the third. Ah, you know, they, they, they kindly put it together. They kind of put it together. Now, you guys are probably thinking, wow, they're really slow, right? But, you know, the, the truth is, is that, you know, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand Scripture. A lot of the things that we hear in church, they'll go right over our heads if we don't have the Holy Spirit helping us. And a lot of times people will say that. I went to Mass and I didn't get anything out of it. Really? What did you put in? Was the Holy Spirit helping you? Did you ask the Holy Spirit for help? You know, and a lot of times people don't think about that. I could think of times when I went to Mass and I didn't get much out of it except for maybe a joke in the homily or something like that. And that's why I don't, I, that's why you know, I'm not a big fan of making too many jokes in homilies because you don't, you don't want your jokes to overshadow the gospel, right? You want people to walk away thinking, I got the gospel out of that. I understand who Jesus is. Rather than, well, Father said a great joke in that homily. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I would say don't go that route. But here the women, they, they finally remember it. It finally hits them. It finally makes sense. And this is something that must happen in our lives where we must come to a point where we say, Lord, now I see what you're doing. Now I see what this is all about. This is the most important thing in life, to live the faith. Verse 8, it says that they remembered his words. And then verse 9, it says, And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. In the ancient world, were women good witnesses? What about a woman who had seven demons cast out of her? She's the primary witness, by the way. This is amazing. You would want a philosopher, a, a, some kind of government official, somebody of a public stature, and a woman who had seven demons cast from her with a few other women would probably be the worst, you know, uh, you know, kind of way to do this if you were going to make this up. And so 2,000 years later, it's really amazing because you, going back to those who doubt the gospel, many of them will say, oh, this was all made up. And, and one of the responses is, hold on a second. If you're going to make this up, this is the last way you would write the story. You wouldn't have women, especially a woman who was possessed by seven demons, being the primary witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. It's the exact opposite of how 
you would do it if it was made up. It could only be the Holy Spirit. And the reason that it was successful being so unlikely that it unfolded this way is exactly because the Holy Spirit made this possible. So, so it's these women that, that are the very first witnesses. And of course, it's one of the biggest sinners, Mary Magdalene, a woman who had seven demons cast from her, although we don't know what her sins were. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So look at even the apostles, they're kind of like, ah, come on, oh, you, you guys, you, you women, what are you, what are you saying? What are you telling us? You must be kidding. So at first, there's even kind of like a little bit of, you know, well, you know, the, even Jesus' apostles couldn't completely accept it. There's resistance to the gospel. Don't be surprised when you meet people who resist believing in the gospel. Be persistent in your faith. Continue to share your faith with them. So going on. Now we're in verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home wondering at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Are they going towards Jerusalem? Or are they going away from Jerusalem? Away from Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to tell you what I, I think the story of Emmaus is modeled on a couple things in the Old Testament. But one story that it's modeled on is the story of Abraham and Isaac. You remember that story? Go take your only son, the one whom you love, and go up to the highlands of Mount Moriah, which is the city of Jerusalem, where the city of Jerusalem would be. And what's interesting is Abraham and Isaac went towards Jerusalem and they were conversing with each other and Isaac could not figure out what it was all about. Here we have two disciples going away from Jerusalem and they're conversing with each other and they can't figure out what it's all about. Isaac's question is, where is the lamb? And the question of the two is, you know, we thought Jesus was the Messiah, but, you know, I guess it all ended in flames. It, you know, he's crucified and that's it. So you, you see kind of like a parallel, but the opposite result happening. So kind of interesting. So let's, let's look at this. They're going away. They're going to Emmaus and they're talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And as they stood still, looking sad, then one of them named Cleophas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. 
But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels. See my point? Men. And by context, you finally go, oh, they are talking about angels. That they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, just a couple things right here. I think it's amazing that our, our Lord just began to walk with them. Of course, they did not recognize our Lord. How many times have you had a moment in your life where you did not recognize what God was doing? And it took you a while to really recognize what the Lord was doing. We probably have all had moments like that. Maybe periods where we did not recognize what God was doing and we finally recognized what he was doing. I remember one time I was... Um, in Peru, and I was looking for the church uh, with uh, this one saint. He was a special saint. He was uh, his name was Martin de Porres. You ever heard of Martin de Porres? And so I was like, I was looking for the church, and people said, "Yeah, it's you know right over here." There was kind of like this church there, and it wasn't that spectacular. And I kind of walked around. And I where is this? Where you know? I was expecting something really big, and I kind of like walked by it you know, a number of times before I realized where, you know, his tomb was. And I just was expecting something big, spectacular, you know. And he was a man who, you know, loved the poor. And, you know, he was buried, you know, it wasn't anything too spectacular. And so I was looking for something else and didn't recognize it. And maybe we make the same mistake with Christ sometimes. We're looking for something else and we don't recognize what Jesus is doing or trying to do in our lives. And then it says that after they told them about, about our, our Lord, about what had happened, if you go to verse 25, he says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What is the most difficult teaching for Judaism? To understand what was the most difficult teaching in the first century for Jesus's contemporaries to understand that the Christ had to suffer and die for our sins. This is the this is the most difficult thing for God's people to understand for the chosen people that the Christ had to suffer and die for our sins sins. And our Lord begins to explain how this is all prophetic. Are any of you familiar with that amazing reading on Holy, it's, it's, I think it's Holy Thursday. If you're familiar with this reading on Holy Thursday, for any of you guys pray the office of the readings? Any of you pray the office of the readings? No? You don't, huh? Well, I have to 
show you how you can pray the office of the readings. So on Holy Thursday, there's a, this amazing reading where it goes through all these figures of the Old Testament and talks about how in one way or another they prepared for the coming of Christ. And, and if you look at them, you can go through and you can say, let's start at the very beginning. Abel was innocent and he's killed by his own brethren. Jesus is innocent, he's crucified by his own brethren. Oh my goodness, wow. Isaac, he's the, he's the son of the promise. He's the son who's loved by the father and he's bound on the altar. And so is Jesus nailed to the cross. And you can just go through each one of them and you, can, and, you can, and you can see Jacob, what happened to Jacob? He was falsely accused and our Lord is falsely accused. How about that? And then you keep, you keep going on and you can look at all these figures who suffered, the prophets who suffered for preaching the word, Job, who, who, was, who was persecuted, even though he was a righteous man. And in many ways, you could look at all the righteous people in the Old Testament who were persecuted by the unrighteous, and you can see it's all preparing for one righteous one who would come into this world, our Lord Jesus Christ, who would be persecuted by the unrighteous, rejected by his own people, handed over first to his own people and then handed over to the Gentiles and crucified for our sake. And so our Lord, he, he's basically saying, wow, you, you, you know, you're slow to understand what all these scriptures mean. And then he's going to go through and he's going to interpret this.